Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. Decked drawer systems. I've always loved Decked, as is, but it's even better now because they just redesigned their drawer system and storage cases from the ground up. They got the Deco case line. These cases are as tough, if not tougher, than Pelican case or Go boxes. Totally waterproof and dustproof. You can literally run over them in your truck and they will be fine. High quality latches and handles make them really easy to use. They look great. They are made in the USA. To check it out, go to decked.com slash meat Get yourself free shipping. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. All right, first off, right before we do anything, YouTube right now. You can go watch the B-side of fishing with our very own beloved Joe Cermelli. So Joe Cermelli used to be, in the old days, it was hook shots with Joe Cermelli. But now Joe Cermelli works with us. He's got a brand new fishing series that we're launching on YouTube called The B-Side of Fishing with Joe Cermelli. You can go right now and watch. And we're doing it like how they used to do in the old days. In the old days when you had to, uh, when there would be a day that it would, so on Tuesdays, we're going to keep putting out B-Side of Fishing with Joe Cermelli's. Tune in every Tuesday. And if, while you're there, subscribe. So you go, you go to the Meat Eater YouTube channel and subscribe. You know, just get all of our stuff because you're a subscriber. So check that out now. Joe Cermelli's great. Also, you should go follow Joe's. Hey, what's Joe Cermelli's Instagram handle? Let me look. If you want to keep track of all of our fishing stuff, and Joe Cermelli in particular, and all of our fishing stuff, Seth will tell you. It's Joe.Cermelli138. What are the 138's all about? I don't know. Hmm. J-O-E dot C-E-R-M-E-L-E-138. Yeah, go because Joe, like, yeah, it's a long story. Hook shots, Joe. He, he's now B-side of fishing, Joe. And then also the Bent Podcast. So if you, if you love Joe, and I do, you can also listen to Joe on... Uh, uh, on the uh, on the bent podcast we got a lot more stuff i'm gonna be fishing with joe in new jersey coming up here real soon what are you fishing for 
Stripers. Oh, nice. Yeah. You didn't know about that? No. Heck yeah. That's cool. I'm not going to tell people why, but yeah. Fishing Stripers with Joel Cermelli. Sweet. The bite. Uh, speaking of Instagram, unbelievable engagement. A, a, a podcast listener wrote in that he had the greatest trail cam video ever taken. And I was like, <laughs> can't be true. Send it to me. It's the kind of trail cam video where he needed to explain it before because he felt it was irresponsible to send it without first explaining what it was. It is a trail cam that they had set up on a field edge and they caught a farmer driving by in a tractor and the farmer, without stopping the tractor, opens the door and hangs out of the tractor to defecate. (laughs) Not even stopping the tractor. Doug Duran, I ran this by Doug Duran, and Doug Duran acts uh, surprised that there's any other way to go. As though, you know, he has his coffee in the morning and then goes and gets in a tractor. Like, very common (laughs) practice. A guy, half a million people watched this farmer there's some great comments i had will (laughs) blur out the farmer's face but i also left it open that i was so impressed with the farmer's work ethic that if he wants to come work with us he's hired right now (laughs) any man that that believes in his job that much that doesn't even stop to you know him and the amazon workers have a lot in common yeah but the difference is they complain he didn't. Yeah, he, he looks. He, he might have been complaining. He, he looked fine to me. You don't know. Have you? You got to talk. Well, to I haven't him. talked to him yet. Yeah. You know what? You're right, Rick. He it's could good. be. He could be uh, real upset about that. He has to keep to schedule. He's like, I'm on such a tight schedule. <laughs> they, these. Doug also pointed out that he's pulling a manure spreader. So it could be in his mind. He's like, listen, they're paying me to spread manure. Why would I? Right? Not contribute. Why would I go off in the bushes when my whole thing is I'm out here spreading nur? <laughs> yep. Don't long haul truckers in a engage key, in something yeah, similar? In a jug. Yeah. Yeah. When you're driving down the road and you see a. Yeah. Have you bottle. ever peed in a jug while you're driving? Oh, yeah. I did it the other day. I was stuck on the freeway <laughs> in LA and I had to do it, man. I had an algae, I swear to God. It's do, you know that, do you know that Guy yeah. Clark song, LA, yeah, Freeway? LA Freeway? Yeah, I was thinking about it. When mm-hmm. I was, I was trapped. The angle can be tricky because if it's tilted, too tilted. It was, it was nerve-wracking. Yeah, it was get, terrifying. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, moving along. Um, I got to do a, a... Okay. A few episodes ago, I was complaining about my new tooth, my molar. Complaining bad. And wasn't yeah. thinking about how my dentist listens to the show. I, like, I wasn't thinking, listen, I'm the one that is my tooth problem, and I should have alerted him. With, I shouldn't have chosen that way to let him know that I wasn't happy with my tooth. But boy, did he make it right. Uh, he heard me talking about it, had me down. It went from being my least favorite tooth to my most favorite tooth. Did you put a little gap in there so stuff doesn't? Took the gap out. Oh, it's tight. Here's what happened. Remember how I was telling you that you should get your molar replaced because your teeth migrate? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, he put the tooth in and then the other tooth like moved away from the tooth. And that's what made that food didn't, trap. Didn't like it. Didn't, no, but now it's my best tooth. 
I asked my dentist if he needs an endorsement. He said he's been around long enough that it doesn't that he doesn't need to go out and look for clients. But he's a hunting dentist. Well, I'm Kevin, gonna be, I'm gonna I, tell you his name, Kevin Pierce. I'm gonna be a, Kevin Pierce. I'm gonna be a client of his. DDS. You should go to him. He is the reason I'm bringing this up. He is very concerned about how you won't replace your molar. I know. That's why I, I want to go down there and talk to him about that. He previewed for me how he's going to convince you <laughs> of the need to get a new molar, and it has to do with a doll sheep he shot one time. Well, I hope he's. I think that your dentist hunts doll sheep. I hope he's bringing his A game. My dentist. Uh, this is funny because this is going to tie into a thing we're going to talk about in a little bit uh, about where Corinne, who's unfortunately not with us right now, is curious why we always have to turn everything into a competition. Who did most of what? To the point where there seems to be a bragging about who's been shot most. Um, but uh, uh, he's gotten double-digit mountain goats because he grew up in Alaska. Whoa. Yeah, he grew up where like you get out of school and go hunt mountain goats for a couple hours. That's like the casual. Yeah. Cool. He was telling me a great story about his old man got uh, mauled by a grizzly mauled by a brown bear and then his old man killed the brown bear and then other brown bears came and ate that brown bear and the whole thing was so vicious and heavy and everything that he said it stripped all the blueberry bushes were all broken off and gone and he and his brother were back there recently and he said you can still tell that area because the blueberry bushes that grew back aren't as high as the blueberry bushes Hmm. Oh, really? Around it. And he said, there's still a big like death circle around. Where he, he's like, they're walking along. He said, that's the tree where dad got mauled. That's crazy. Yeah, cool dentist, man. Yeah, great dentist. Yeah, totally cool. Like, man, did not just, you know, publicly. Uh, my, it's my favorite tooth now. Um, another thing I want to touch on real quick. I had, uh, my kids got this new game. It's called uh, On a Scale of One to T-Rex. And in this game, it's kind of hard to explain, but we were playing the game a lot, and you have to, it's like there's a charade component to it, and one of the charades is you need to act like you're driving a car and someone's pursuing you. And we were playing the game, and that night I had a dream that uh, needs to be turned into art, and I had a dream of a fox riding a horse with a rabbit's in his a rabbit in his mouth looking over his shoulder as though being pursued mm. i bring that up you should because, have you should have him with a chicken in its mouth like the fox in the hen house yeah he's being pursued with a chicken i'll bring that up for any artists out there uh <laughs> inspiration <laughs> oh yeah amazing it'd be an amazing painting a fox riding a horse with a rabbit in his mouth looking over his shoulder as though very alarmed about who's pursuing him Kelsey. Fan art. Um, She's too busy. Robert Abernathy's here with us. We're going to get to you. we got to take care of a few things up top. No problem. Okay. Hang <laughs> tight. You're actually going to come into this in a minute here. Uh, tons of listener responses that we've had to deal with about, uh, because we like to talk about fleshing and how Seth's super good at flesh and stuff. Um the the whole thing of like pressure wash like 
Everybody's like, oh, you should pressure wash. Are you familiar with this, Robert? Pressure no. wash, like fleshing raccoons with a pressure washer, fleshing what? beavers with a pressure washer. Never heard of it. It's not a really, granted, like some people do it. It, it is, it is not a thing worth recommending to people. Um, I agree. Now, a friend of mine is a professional hide handler, and I asked him what his take on it is, and he said, here's his sentence. Just imagining beaver fat and meat spread over an acre after being sprayed in every direction has limited my interest. Mm. <laughs> and it's... And he says also that it only works when it's they do it in the winter and it's frozen outside, so you can't do it. But yeah, it's like you take a pressure washer and you take a hide that you want to get tanned or tan yourself and strip it of fat and meat cleaned down to leather with a pressure washer. This dude, Stu, I was watching this because like it has a horrible, I mean, it blows the stuff everywhere. Yeah. So there's a professional fur handler named Stu, and he's got this thing. If you want to learn like great fur handling techniques, this dude's stuff, Coon Creek Outdoors, he does a big explanation of like, why it is complete horseshit. He has a video on his channel about it, right? Yeah. He's like, yeah, all right, here, it. here, let's set it up. Let's yep. do everything just right and set it up. It's just not the same thing. He's a guy that throws them in the washing machine too, right? He does wash all of his hides in the washing machine. After flushing or before? He's adamant that it's pre-flushing. Whoa. Why is that? It's easier to dry. With fat and stuff on it. Yep. So when he, everything he does, when he skins a fox, he skins the fox, no detergent, just cold water, washes it in the classic washing machine. He's got a washing machine in his fur shed with no lid on it, I noticed. Puts it down in there and washes it, pulls it out, hangs it to dry. But the dude is very, very attention to detail. Very attention to detail. If if you want to learn... Nothing gets you sad. No, no. I, I go to him all the time. Yeah. I go to his channel yeah. to learn stuff. What's his last name? Is it Stu Miller? I don't remember. Has he been on here? No. He should be. Uh, He hasn't. Coon Creek Outdoors. Great stuff. I mean, it, like, if you just, like, seeing how to do stuff, he does an interesting job of explaining how to do stuff. Uh, When I was thinking about why that's the wrong way to do it. There's this book, and I'm going to do a major book report on this book, but uh, uh, Alaska's Wolfman, which I've been talking about a lot. In this book, he goes to this prospector's house, and the prospector's house is the, it's, he talks about how it's the kind of the grossest, grimiest place he's ever spent the night, but the prospector keeps his plates screwed to the tabletop. I read, I read the book. Yeah, it's a great yeah, book, isn't it? It's a great book. You read that book? I read that book. Really? <laughs> I remember that. You and me and my brother Danny are the only people to ever read that book. <laughs> he has dogs, and the guy wonders, like, why are the plates screwed to the table permanently? And it's because he just eats, and then the dogs can get up and lick the plates clean, and the plate doesn't move around. So they can get it extra clean, and then that's how he does his... Just lets it be. Oh, I like that idea, dude. And I'm just saying that that's, that'd be like people, if I, if every time me and Seth talked about washing dishes, if someone's like, oh, no, no, you don't need to wash dishes. Just screw the plate to a table. Get a dog. Get a dog. That's like the pressure washing flesher people. But steel plate. I don't know. Yeah. I imagine because you can't. You can't drill a hole. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, you could. You take specialized equipment. Uh, You're familiar with Preston Pittman, Robert. Oh, yeah. As a big turkey man. Yeah, I've met him several times. He was on the show 
We're still in our listener feedback section here, Robert. Okay. He was on the show and he was talking about how he got shot twice. And then Corinne, our producer, was curious, why did we then get so many emails of people talking about that ain't nothing uh, based on how many times I've been shot? And a guy writes in, a guy named Zach, he writes in, I've been listening to episode 264 of the podcast. The guest was shot twice and y'all think that's crazy. My father has been a guide and outfitter for almost 40 years. He's been shot 13 times. <laughs> Jeez. What's, what's he guiding? That'd be the question. <laughs> and has had several dogs shot. Just find you might all find that interesting. Uh, best bird dogs. Yeah, he's got to be bird hunting. Corinna asks, why do folks, dare I say mostly men in my own experience, seem so often to give in to the tendency of making something a competition? I understand that some things might reasonably and legitimately be structured as competitive, but why is there an impulse, in this case, to one-up Preston Regarding the number of times he's been shot. Because it didn't kill him. My dad was shot one time. He was? Yeah. Hunting. What happened? Uh, as he likes to point out, made it all the way through World War II without getting scratched by a bullet. Got scratched by other stuff, but never scratched by... Shot through his rain poncho. During the war? Yeah, shot through his rain. Oh, jeez, yeah. man. A whole That's a close shot call, through his man. rain poncho. Never, I brought this up, never forgave the Germans. Um, got home and was hunting rabbits with his nephew. And his nephew, they're walking along. And his nephew put a load of bird shot right into the side of his foot. Oh. And they kept it secret. Was he aiming at a rabbit? Or no. Was he just, just walking and just shot. They were walking side by side and shot it right into his foot. And so they, they, kept, they kept it secret. Kept it secret. And he was at his, and he went and laid on his couch. I can't remember if it was his grandma, or if he was at his grandma's or his mom's or something. Was laid up on the couch, and everybody talked about how lazy he was now and everything. But it was because he'd been shot in the foot. <laughs> oh, yeah. But how did he? It must not have been a serious wound, or did? No, did, he would. He would. Uh, he would. Back when they used to X-ray your foot to see mm -hmm. if your shoe fit right. Uh, this is before my time. He would go and show everybody all those shotgun pellets in his foot. Oh wow! Yeah, I've explained this a bunch. When I, when we had, I ran all of his ashes through a screen. Oh, to get the lead back? Yeah, but I think it, you know, <laughs> melted, melted. Yeah, couldn't find it. Found all kinds of dental work and couldn't find the lead. It says the guy's been shot thirteen times. Chester, where have you been? Well, I know, but oh. <laughs> I'm just bringing that up again and saying that. I feel like it sounds like anybody that wants to brag about being shot 13 times is probably their problem. Like well, they got to think about who they're hunting with and where they're hunting. He's I mean, a guy. Like, he's hunting with. He's hunting with clients. Yeah, I know, but he, he should do a better job. Yeah, there's something he's not doing right. Something. But I, yeah, so to take on Corinne's thing about it's not like I think Corinne. God bless you. It's not bragging. I don't think you're bragging. Like generally, at, at, like I, I even put in my note here, at any given moment, for Corinne to see, I wrote, at any given moment, most people are trying not to get shot. Like generally, among all the other things you're doing, you're trying not to get shot. Yeah, and it's, it's only the survivors that wrote in. So it's not like you're not, <laughs> you're, you're not bragging, you're like observing about it. Yeah. Because yeah. if you were said like, 
I go to the gym every day. Look at my big muscles. That's bragging because you're trying to get them and then you got them and you alert people. But if you go through life trying not to get shot and then you get shot, it's not a bragging point. It's more of a, you're right that people make stuff into competition. We had, we had a, a bench press competition the other day and a pull-up competition. There, right? there is mm-hmm. a sense that if you, get, if you get shot and you survive it, that it's a badge of honor, that you've avoided yeah. something that could be far worse. So once or twice is like, I got struck by lightning. It's like, look, and I made it, like, somehow, miraculous. Yeah, is that, man, is that man bragging? The man that says, I've been struck by lightning. Well, if somebody then goes, but I've been struck, that's pretty cool, but I've been struck five times. Well, let's just call it one-upsmanship. Yeah, yeah so it's, rela- it's related to a attention-seeking <laughs> impulse. <laughs> I thought, of, like, <laughs> this unique fact about me, we might all be similar looking, but guess what, guys? I've been shot three times. However, if we were sitting here, one guy got struck by lightning, and then the other guy got struck five times legitimately, it'd be very hard for him to sit here and not say anything. I was going to say the same thing. It's not bragging, though. No, it's like when people go uh, talking about their international travels. Oh, this one time I went to Papua New Guinea, and then somebody else was like, oh, that's pretty cool, but I lived in, I don't know, with the Bush people. You know, it's one-upmanship, so it is related to a... Yeah. I think it is gender... Related to something. Oh, degree. for sure. But we all yeah. know that I'm... Has your dad been shot, Chester? My dad has not been shot. So no. we all know... <laughs> we all know... <laughs> not that I'm aware of. We all know... We all now know that I'm cooler than Chester. <laughs> because my dad was shot. So... That story was great. Yeah, story. So like, like, that's better than Chester. Like, that makes me better than Chester, clearly. Uh, and that impulse actually uh, helps. Is that, <laughs> I think it's like a storytelling impulse. Oh, yeah. Like well, my dad was what? a mushroom grower. No. <laughs> my yeah. dad's kind of been struck by lightning. Oh, well. Yeah. But if somebody were to say, I've been struck 13 times by lightning, I would be very curious why they keep getting struck by lightning. Well, I got a question. Are they counting? Like, if, if he's running, like, if he's doing, like, bird hunting, are they counting incidents of him getting shot? Or are they counting, like, the amount of BBs in his leg oh i'm sure it's instances because yeah. you can't count the look we'll have to have we'll have we'll have to have corinne see if she can get the guy to come on the show for a minute we'll ask him how he keeps getting shot <laughs> maybe we can give him some insight about how to to <laughs> at least reduce the amount of shootings you're involved in because one of them is eventually going to get him yeah mm-hmm. i wonder what he considers shot nah, i don't listen it might be i've been shot if you count catching bird shot yeah same like dove hunting and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Just like, oh, someone, you yeah, know, like, we're going, tap, tap, tap. Couple, jet, like, yeah. 100 yard away from you, shoots Stings at a little dove, bit. and then, I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't count that. S- smacks you. Uh, but reason I bring up, reason I bring, oh, and then Corinne also went on to say, then she also is asked, like, why do people, like, this competitive thing, and then gets into, like, fishing contests, coyote hunting contests. It's different. Those are com- completely different. I don't know. How many, talking about whether you've been shot or not is not the same thing as going to a fishing derby. No. But I also don't know if it's a gender thing because like, I'm very uncompetitive. And I know women that are extremely competitive. Like I have friends who are very competitive. So I don't know if it's like... Because she's saying it is a gender thing. I think if you took... She, she's saying in her experience, yeah. it seems to be weighted that way. And I would think that if you took... Um, a hundred men, a hundred American men, randomly selected men, and a hundred randomly selected American women, and put a question to them like, um, "Raise your hand if you've been in a competition 
in the last week. I feel I, I have a suspicion <laughs> yeah. that more yeah. male and it could there's it could it's social, you know, cultural, social. Yeah, I'm not saying it's like it's like like, like a genetic thing, but but I just think you'd have more. I, I think the the, the hundred dudes would have more hands shoot up. I think you're right. Yeah, I'm but, but that way. it could be like right. it could be like to, uh, totally yeah. socially constructed. Mm-hmm. I do think when people are asked if they're competitive, it's. It, Sometimes in certain circles is a negative thing. Oh no! It, if you're like, competitive, you care too much about like little things. I could, I could get real upset if we like were trying to make baskets into a trash can, make it like throw. So I would just be like, God, I lost. I didn't get my. We played horse today. I mean, I really don't want to lose ever. I lose all the time, but I mean, it upsets me. It doesn't matter how. Yeah. Minor. But there's also a thing that happens. There's like a bullshit thing that happens to women where it's more it, like if a dude is described as competitive, like he's a competitive, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, that's laudatory. But it can also be a thing that you'd say about a woman that would be like, like mm. not flattery. Right. Oh, she's very competitive. Yeah. And it's like it's bad. A, it's a bad double standard. Yeah. Anyhow. We, uh, oh, reason. I was, oh, go ahead. I was going to say we, amongst like our friend group, we have a little shed hunting competition going. I must be out of the friend group. Well, it's just like it's a different. Did you catch that? Yeah, me too, man. It's, yeah. a, it's a different. It's a different friend group. Uh huh. But uh, just like like the, the not the not good friends. No, no, they're good friends. It's just better, better in fact. But anyway, this is not the point. Still different. Um, the most competitive person in this little shed hunt competition is Kelsey, my girlfriend. Well, they're blowing she's everything. Out, she's out there right that now. That blows everything. She's, literally, she's yeah. out there right now, shed hunting. Huh? All right. For the competition purpose and to get cool. I mean, shots. she she loves yeah. to do it, but yeah, but she, she wants to win. She wants to win. It. All right, there you have it. Settles that. Reason I bring this up, Robert, you were you were actually uh, um, you expressed some opinions about uh, birdshot that people use, and right. I noticed you actually factored in the experience of one being shot right in your birdshot selection. Right, I've been shot twice, not thirteen times, just twice. But I, I count it as peppering. I mean, I, if, if I get peppered and it penetrates clothing, you know, it doesn't it didn't have to draw blood. But I got shot turkey hunting, and uh, the guy shot me with a, du- a duplex load. Hold on, so hold on. Back, back up. I got I to gotta get a couple things straight. All right. You're saying that you count it being shot if it penetrates your clothes. Yeah, if he aims a gun at me and pulls the trigger with the intent of causing bodily harm, that's what the turkey hunter did. He thought I was a turkey. Yeah, I got he you. He shot me. And then a kid shot me pheasant hunting. The pheasant flushed between us, and I saw the shotgun barrel. I looked down the shotgun barrel and hit the dirt, and the gun went off as I was falling, and it went through my hat. And, oh, man. And Jeez. luckily didn't didn't draw blood. One pellet hit me between the eyes. Oh. And if it had been a half an inch to either side, it would have gone through an eye, but it hit me on the bridge of the nose. And, uh, and huh. two, two or three pellets in the shoulder or something. But they, they didn't penetrate the skin. But it wasn't getting rained on. Tell, you know, your dog oh, hunting, yeah, that happens all yeah, the time. Yeah, that happens all the time. It rains down on you. But the turkey hunting, I'd been working a bird, and he quit gobbling. And just like the one did this morning, quit gobbling. And so I slipped down in this little bottom, and I was looking, and there was a clear cut. And I said, well, maybe he went out in that clear cut. And I was glass, and I was looking. I heard a cluck up on the, up on the hill. And... It wasn't a gobble, it was a cluck. It was just one cluck. And hunters never just make one cluck. They're they're like, gow, 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 gow. they're just calling, calling. It's just one cluck. 
but there was a fire break running up the hill and I just thought, you know, if there's somebody walking that fire break, maybe he's, but he's, it's 80 yards to the top of the hill. I'll see him if it, if it's a hunter, but I got behind a tree anyway. And thinking about getting shot. Yeah. I got behind a tree. But why were you thinking he was going to shoot you? I'd been shot once and didn't want to get shot again. And I got shot that morning. <laughs> I, don't get, I don't want to get shot a third time. And, uh, but, uh, but I, I turned to look out into the clear cut. And as I turned, I picked my leg up and set it on a stump. So, I, you know, I was standing up straight and I kind of went like that to rest myself. And he shot me and uh, two pellets hit me in the leg and one hit me on the side of the head. If I hadn't, if I hadn't turned my head at that moment, it would hit me in the face. It was only one pellet. And I yelled, and he came running down the hill. He was, when the, when the game wardens investigated the incident, he said, oh, well, it looks like you're okay. Well, we'll see you later. And he left, and I called, you know, you're supposed to report an incident, so I reported it. He was 85 yards away when we found the shell. We found the shell that, that's how we knew it was a duplex shell. Then we went down to the tree I was standing behind. There were 25 pellets in the tree that I was standing behind. Oh, jeez. Oh, and he was shooting a three-and-a-half-inch duplex shell with twos, fours, and sixes, or two sixes, seven-and-a-halves, I'm not sure. But the two is what penetrated the seam on my pants. And it's the only one that really stung. The sixes, you know, they didn't sting. It wasn't bad. But the, the number two penetrated the, uh, you know, my, my camouflage, you know, not just the cloth, but the seam of the cloth and went in. And, you know, number twos, number twos tell you up. Some states, it's legal to shoot turkeys with buckshot. Some of the states, there's no limit. I mean, you shoot them with anything. Oh, dude. And, um, you know, and same thing with rifles. You got people and you can, that's a whole debate, but you got people hunting in full camo, no blaze orange, and other people using rifles. How does he, um, I just don't understand anybody like especially after this week where the turkeys come in they came in within like 25 yards right 40 maybe yeah how do you confuse that with a person well he he came over this hill and 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 i don't know it was early in the morning you know it was first hour of daylight and he saw that movement of my leg and he he said what he saw was a gobbler with a red head going to full strut how in <laughs> god's name and he shot at 85 yards. I mean, it's That's like also, 85 yeah. yards. And uh, I saw a gobbler going into full strut for the first time in my life on this trip. Close. Close. And I would never think like, oh, that dude's leg definitely looks exactly like <laughs> that turkey. But that's, he, a, that's a question that comes up whenever people get shot is, and, and often, to, you know, deer hunters shoot people. Yeah. And you're like, so not only did you think that that man was a deer, yeah. you thought you were aiming like behind its shoulder? Uh, yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah, and that you'd uh, like had seen what it has on its head, and well, and it can happen to a more experienced hunter than a less experienced hunter, because the hunter is expecting something, and his brain processes what he sees faster, mm. and he processes it wrong, and so he might see a bit of movement, or he might be our little brains you know, are fallible. Yeah, today uh, you got to be careful. You got to hunt defensively. Today I saw a raccoon. Yep. And I thought it was a hen. Well, to your credit though, there was a, a gobbler ripping. Yeah. Right on the other side of the log the raccoon was on. Yeah. yeah. 
And I thought it was a turkey, like the back of a fan or a hen, slinking over a log. But did you start firing shots over there? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was going to wait until I... unload on the raccoon and be like, oh, I thought it must have been a turkey. Yeah, sorry, guys. (laughs) And and we, we looked at a lot of hunting accident reports, and one of the highest incidents, and they now call them incidents. They don't call them accidents anymore. You don't have hunting accidents. You have hunting incidents. And that's because it's not an accident until it's been investigated. Mm. Until then, it's an incident. And most of them are buddies shooting other buddies. The shooter knows the victim in most instances. Yeah. Especially turkey hunting, where somebody might separate and say, hey, I'm going to hunt on this side of the road. You hunt on that side of the road. And the guy on this side of the road, here's the bird just tearing it up on the other side. And he's going, you know, there's, there's no way he can hear that bird. He doesn't hear that bird. I know he doesn't hear that bird. <laughs> and pretty soon he's crossing the road and he's hunting the same bird as his buddy's hunting. Mm-hmm. And that's where accidents, that's where accidents happen. You just, that's why I like hunting remote areas like, like we were hunting. I like hunting as remote an area as possible or private land, but statistically in the Southeast, more accidents occur on private land than public land. Because it's 90 some percent. Exactly. Yeah. It's the most common type of land. I know dudes that were, this is in Pennsylvania, they were working a bird, and the bird kind of did the same thing the one did this morning, came close and then like drifted away. Right. And there was, there was either three or four of them together hunting, and they got up and were standing in a group together talking about what had just happened, and someone shot all of them. <laughs> yeah. What was he thinking? I, I have no clue. Do I feel like there's some bad intent there it's like gotta be it's, you can't just i don't remember well, the he, outcome of he it. heard a, he had a bird you know you'd have to ask the shooter but he heard a bird gobbling and decided to slip up on it and the 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 chances that it's just so hard you can't you can do it sure you can do it but the odds are you just can't do it just you you're supposed to set up and call the animal to you yeah i mean that's that's how it works but um you just gotta be careful you just gotta be super careful Super careful. Do you know what type of hunting has the most incidents? Bird. Usually bird, right? Yeah. yeah swinging. I, on, I think it's swinging on a bird. Swinging on game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah swinging on game. Most. You're, you're focused on, you know, and you also get trained doing it where you're shooting through brush and all the time. You're focused on the bird. You're not focused on what's between right. you and the bird. Yeah. That's how. Uh, that's how Dick Cheney. Yeah. Yeah. Shot his body. Yeah. Everybody had a good time with that, and I don't. I'm not trying to stick up for shooting your body, but. Uh, definitely could see how that would happen. I'm oh, not, yeah. for, not forgiving it, but I mean, just realistically, yeah. yeah. It's like, but you got to look at the odds. You got to look at the statistics. That's the. It's much much safer. I mean, the most dangerous thing you do when you go deer hunting is you get in a car and you drive down the highway. And you know that's the most dangerous thing you're doing because car wrecks, of course, car accidents. And then the second most dangerous is you climb up in a tree stand. And the, the accident rates with tree stand has gone down dramatically because people wear belts now. They wear safety harnesses. I mean, when, when I was coming along, we didn't wear we didn't wear any harnesses. Yeah, you told us some fun yeah, stories. Yeah, I fell out of two tree stands. Yeah. Climb climb back up and kept on hunting. <laughs> <laughs> but I got buddies that, that didn't climb back up. They crawled out of the woods. And um, it's, it's, I had one buddy that fell out and broke broke a leg and crawled out of the woods and we got to the highway it was a chain link fence he couldn't uh. he couldn't get to the highway except he had a leatherman 
And he sat there and he cut the chain link fence and crawled through the chain link fence and got on the edge of the highway and started flashing his blaze orange vest. Oh my Jeez, God. Really? If he hadn't had, if he hadn't had wire cutters, no, oh. you know, is that guy still alive? Yeah. As far as I know, I haven't heard from him in a long time, but yeah, as far as I know, had another guy fell out of a tree stand. He climbed all the way up there and, and, uh, it was one of those climbers, and by the time he got to the top, the tree had gotten smaller. As they do. As they do, as they all do. <laughs> not and, not as bad with a longleaf pine. That's right. They don't have taper. And, uh, <laughs> and he had gotten up there, and you know he was kind of hanging down, so he turned around, and he reached around the tree, and he, he opened it up and readjusted it on both sides. It, he, he, missed, he missed the pins. Mm. So when he slid it around and put the pins in, they didn't, they didn't go through the bar that went around. And he sat back down and leaned back, make sure it was sturdy. Went straight over back. Didn't have a safety belt on. Went over back, landed on his leg, broke his lower leg. Ooh. And the only, kept him, the only thing kept him from bleeding to death was he had high-top snake boots. And so his leg immediately swole up and effectively acted like a tourniquet because it, it, it was a compound fracture through the leg. Oof. And then he started screaming, and he had a buddy a couple hundred yards away. Tree stands are dangerous. I mean, you got to be careful. Got to be careful. They got warnings. They got multiple warnings on every one of them. And um, yeah, you know. So so you know, we, we're talking about shooting as an accident, but there's there's a lot more things out there that are a lot higher risk than going hunting. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be careful, and you shouldn't be defensive and be aware and. Don't lean your shotgun against the side of a of a car. Or, you know, go go lay it on the ground or go put it in the crotch of a tree or something. Just you got to think about that all the time. I was looking at these statistics about injuries, hunting related injuries, compared to other sport. Like if you call it a sport compared right. to other sports. I mean, you line up all like the the sports that we talk about and think about. Um, Hunting ranks in at pool and billiards. Right. Oh, for safety? <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, I mean, because when you compare it to, like... Football. Yeah. 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 You, you start comparing it to, like, skiing. Climbing. Dude, you want... Oh, man. Yeah. Skiing injuries. Dude, everybody I know that skis is always breaking an arm, breaking a collarbone. Something. All right, we're going to move on. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 not to, no, no, I'm good with that. Oh, you know that guy, you know what, what, what the guy finished for us? Our electrical, uh, our engineer. What? We got a guy that's we're get we're taking possession of it soon. It's a master light in the middle of the table, and everyone has an interest dial. Oh, it's oh, it, you're doing it. You're really doing ma- it. An engineer made it for us. Oh, dude. Everyone he has an interest dial. Yeah. But it it calculates all input. Oh, and comes up with an average for the... So if someone's talking about something that you don't think is interesting, you don't need to hurt their feelings personally. You just very quietly... Oh, dude, that's going to... Turn your dial down. I don't know. That's going <laughs> to psychologically... No, that's great. You turn your dial down. No one knows, like... It's it's like... You know when they used to do the executions with the firing squad and they'd give uh, yeah. some of the guys a blank? <laughs> so nobody knows who's they'd responsible. give some of the guys a blank, right? Yeah. It's like that. So you don't have ownership over the yeah, but the, the someone will sit there talking and they'll see that light just getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and later you'd be like, oh no, bro, I was cranked up. Yeah, I was. I don't know other I mean, people I was, must. I, I was fascinating, man. I cranked my thing all the way up. 
<laughs> that will must have so, been, uh, been other people. That probably will happen. Yeah, it must have been other people who didn't like your story. But how are people going to transition out of that once they see that light turn in colors? They better, and- they better wrap it up. <laughs> 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 or get to a good part. Listen, I got some stories. Oh, that's scary. I got some stories I'm going to tell where I'm going to be like, I know that sucker's going to dim down. Oh, but you're just going to test I'm the... I'm just playing it. Yeah. Because then I know that it's going to start getting bright. <laughs> yeah. Bright, bright, bright. Now, is Dim interested? No, Dim is not interested. Yeah. Now, I'll be like, oh, yeah, it's, it's Dim now, buddy. You wait a minute. <laughs> it should, it should, it's, it, that should be a perk right up. I wonder if you could do a thing where it gets to a point and it's just like, it's too bad. And well, like, it looks, if everybody has their and your mic all, turns off. Yeah. Mic, yeah. Well, yeah. The, guy that, the problem is the guy that's making this said it turned into a lot more work than he reckoned with. Oh, okay. So if I told him that I also wanted to have the capability of shutting that person's mic off, I think it, I might need to send it back in a year and have him work on that. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that to him. Meal prepping and thinking about what's for dinner all the time can be a real stressor. Well, using ButcherBox helps relieve that stress. With ButcherBox, you're always prepared with good quality meat in the freezer. It's the ultimate convenience with custom curated boxes shipped right to your door with free shipping, which means fewer trips to the grocery store. It's hard to find the same value at the store because what store can you go to where you're going to get free protein for a whole year alongside your order? Plus, they have a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive member deals, and they make it even easier on you with recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of weeknight meal essentials. Three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and use code MeatEater to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Hey, everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years you get one of these knives up and open it it is sharp like something that came from outer space and here's the deal they make knives that can be sharpened you can work on these knives if you don't want to work on them you send it to them and they'll work on it they'll get it sharp phenomenal hunting knives if you want to see them in action we just did uh me and uh john hayes the taxidermist just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEAT EATER. That's a good deal. 
Onyx Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. Phil's going to play uh, the, 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 um, the, the Bitcoin update song <laughs> the continuing adventures of chester the investor <laughs> come to papa moon that's it come on can you sing your little song chester what song your favorite little song the coyote song mm. what i want to do is i want to I wanna revamp the the chester the investor theme so it has yeah, I can do Some that, element but... of that in there. Uh, how's it going, Chester? I understand that Bitcoin has really just stabilized, and you're not very close to the walleye boat. Uh, it stabilized. It went up today to uh, $61,000 per Bitcoin, Ooh. and immediately some, some uh, gambling folk sold. <laughs> And oh, some short termers, and it went down just a little bit. It's sitting at 58,185, but it's kind of been that 55 through 60 for quite some time, which is fine. You know, Robert Chester put he had a bunch of money in a drawer in his house. Was it a sock drawer? Uh, it was a nightstand. He was keeping all of his money in his nightstand. And just to be clear, I don't keep it's not any there money anymore in now. my house. If in anyone that thinks yeah, of breaking into really Chester's house, that. he moved it to a different drawer. Different so, house. It's in his car now. <laughs> All his money's in his car. He moved the Bitcoin. He took the money out of his nightstand and invested it in cryptocurrency because he knows that it's blown up and he's just saving for a walleye boat. Okay, good. Um, I was, what was funny today is, Chester, can, can we talk about your family planning? Yeah. Well. It's not, okay, uh, can I say this? Can, can Phil leave this in? That I would that uh, I could say that um, it's not uh, inaccurate to say that Chester may someday desire to have a family. That is not. Yeah, that's true. Okay, that's true. <laughs> and I was observing to Chester if that's the case, he might think about getting this walleye boat first. To which Robert <laughs> said he might think about getting his hooks first. <laughs> <laughs> Because money can get tight. <laughs> yes, exactly. Hey, that's that's why I'm doing a little investing, you know? Uh, th- there's a guy I know, um, Alfred. Uh, he's an investor, sort. He was saying, this is good news for you, Chester. He's saying how a lot of asset managers are purchasing cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin, 
to gain exposure in this new asset class. The theory is that Bitcoin is the bellwether of an altogether new asset class to which they should have some exposure. For example, 1% of net asset value. And he goes on to say this. If sovereign central banks buy as well, he's saying there's going to be increased meaningful demand for a finite asset. I read that to say walleye boats. Yes, for sure. But like we were talking about in the last segment, might keep that in there. Sell my drift boat here real soon and uh, mm. get a walleye boat with that. Keep the Bitcoin, keep the Bitcoin rolling. Yeah, what's the opportunity? Hey, you know what I got? Oh. What's the opportunity cost of not having that walleye boat? Like, how much is it costing you? He he fishes out a Seth's walleye boat. Well, then it's not costing him anything. Yeah, it is. To hang out with my wife, because she'd be able to fit in the boat. Yeah, see, the problem, oh. is, the problem is right now, if, if, if we have my boat, and we can only fit three people in there. Yeah, but oh. you guys only usually fish together. It's like one of you's going out. We, we you I want mean, more people in the boat is what you're saying. You can't bring your yeah. Like if if Chad had a boat, I could bring my gal. Steve he could bring his come. gal, and then we could have two other people. You can come, Chris. No, I don't oh, want Chris, I don't thanks, want Chris to go. Okay, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> Chris, you're out. <laughs> Damn it all! But <laughs> I only got my invitation. Uh. Guy wrote in, oh, you good on that? Yeah, I'm good on it. Oh, I, I got a proposal for you. We're going to start a thing. We're going to start a thing called the, the, the Meat Eater Auction House of Oddities for Conservation. And we're going to sell one-of-a-kind oddities and raise it for our land access initiative. I love it. Yeah, we got a lot of items we're putting in this auction house. I got some things I regret doing other stuff with that I wish I would have put in the auction house, but we got cool stuff that's going to the auction house. What if you knew what amount you needed out of your boat and we've sold your boat at the auction house knowing that you could peel off? Yeah. Every yeah. in it, there's a minimum bid and that's what you need. Yeah. Every extra dollar we get goes into our land access initiative. Oh man. Oh, that's a well, good th- idea. Kick, there, kick it around, Chester. Kick it around, Chester. I like that. Uh, guy wrote in about how they had a buck. You know, everybody names bucks. Do you guys name bucks, Robert? I don't know. Uh, they I even, mean, we, you know, you look at the antlers and you say, well, that one, we got one with a broken antler. We got one with five on one side, four on the other, but we don't, I don't name them. You, you don't, they don't become like Dave and no, Bob. And, no, that's a little too personal for something to eat, you know? Yeah. This guy, uh, listener named Marty wrote in, they had a buck, um, in Michigan's upper peninsula, an eight point buck. He said it was, he was so regular that he would enter their hayfield from the tree line of the neighbor's property every afternoon at the same time within five minutes. And he says they, he was so regular that they named him Metamucil. <laughs> <laughs> then his brother shot at the buck and missed it, and they never saw it again. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Cuts. Never saw it again. Got plugged right up. Bunch of, <laughs> <laughs> bunch of feedback on tularemia. Also, we found this out. Okay, a lot of feedback on tularemia because we we're talking about tularemia and Brody mentioned how they, they'll teach you all the time and, and it, we even mentioned this in our, in our wilderness skills book. Well, we talk about like the risk of tularemia. Um, 
and we mentioned that it's a common practice. You probably know this, Robert. What do you do to see if a rabbit has tularemia? You tell me. I I don't. It's oh, just clean so, it. No, there's like this it. thing you're supposed to look at the liver. Uh, I didn't know that. No. Yeah. Maybe probably good that you didn't. <laughs> If there's a thing like you can look at the liver and you're looking for spots on the liver. Oh, okay. And that would be indicative of yeah. that'll be uh indicative of tularemia. So a guy wrote in, um, he's a molecular microbiologist, studied tularemia and its pathology on human cells, wrote his master's thesis on tularemia. He went on to say this. As you know, and he goes on to plug our own wilderness skills book, as you know. And it may also be found in Meteor's Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. Ulceroglandular forms of the disease can be contracted by humans following interaction with small rodents and lagomorphs. Lagomorphs. People like to say rabbits are rodents. Rabbits are not rodents. Rabbits are lagomorphs. Rabbits and hares are lagomorphs. As well as through mechanical and vector transmission by biting arthropods. So that's the thing. Like, when you're carrying a rabbit around, I feel like we, I don't know, weren't you guys here and we did this thing? It was about the guy that went to a dude who was selling, he was a Tonka truck enthusiast and bought old Tonka trucks from a guy on Craigslist, but also bought a rabbit and brought the rabbit home. The rabbit scratched his daughter, about killed her. I heard about that, but no. I. Yeah. This guy wrote in to clarify some points about that stuff. So if you kill a rabbit in the early season, in the fall, and you're carrying that rabbit around, and all of a sudden, you realize he's got little mites, little fleas biting your arm. Which I see all the time. All the time. That's why, like, in the old days, I think still now, we were always taught that you don't hunt rabbits until you've had a good bunch of freezes. But it's funny because that doesn't work in the South. No. So do you ever hear anything that you don't kill rabbits till some point in the winter? I'd known hunters that would hang them in a tree. Okay. They'd shoot them and hang them in a tree and swing around the field, come back two hours later, yep. pick them up. Because as, as the body temperature left the rabbit, the fleas would jump off. Yeah. yeah. And, we would, and people would tell us, we were kids, like, that's why, you, like, oh, you don't, hunt, you don't hunt rabbits till January. Because as the cold weather comes, it kills off the parasite load, and there's less of them jumping on your arm and biting you. So you can get tularemia from cutting your hand, and you just get the bacteria in your hand. Or the little bug can jump and get you and bite you, and that can give you tularemia. He also points out, in addition, inhalation of Francisella tularensis, tularensis, Francisella tularensis. He's given us the Linnaean name for this species. It's very problematic. Only a few bacterium need to cause the pulmonary disease. And he mentions that this is what happened. Remember I was talking about the person that hit a rabbit yeah. with a lawnmower? That was in Martha's Vineyard. On Martha's Vineyard, someone hit a dried-out rabbit with a lawnmower, inhaled, and then got tularemia that way. Inhaled the bacteria. And how... how that was deadly for that person, right? The one I'm... I don't know if the one they're talking about, but the one I'm thinking of, the person died from it. How deadly is it if you get a cut or bit by one of the... Treatable. Treatable. You don't want it in your lungs. Yeah. Goes on to say this. Uh, rabbits are famous for uh, not showing sickness 
not demonstrating sickness, then all of a sudden just dying. And he was saying, if you are going around looking for tularemia by a cursory glance at the liver, it's not a great idea. Tularemia-infected rabbits may exist, may um, have necrotic tissue on the liver, spleen, or lymph nodes, but this would be in late-stage disease and more than likely wouldn't be the indicator that a rabbit was sick and shouldn't be eaten or better yet even handled, meaning it's only at the last minute that that shows up. In this country, 1.1% of lagomorphs in the northern hemisphere have tularemia. It's pretty. That's pretty high. I don't okay. think so. You, every hundredth One rabbit. Out of 100? Yeah, every hundredth rabbit you clean, be careful. He suggests. Um, or a group of 100 <laughs> rabbit hunters. <laughs> one yeah. person is going to. Yeah. You're good yeah. for the first 99. It's only going to be the last yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> no, what he recommends here, he's like, at a minimum, handling rabbits, late, late, latex or nitrile gloves. If you want to go ne- the next layer up, uh, get a face mask. Oh, wear a mask. Use some of your COVID equipment. Yeah. yeah. Take your leftover mean. COVID mask and plop, put it on your face. He's saying that, but he's saying like at a minimum, wear gloves and long sleeves. Do the rabbits, and hang your rabbits in a tree. Do they carry the plague too? I don't know, but everything does. Yeah. But I know rodents. Yeah. Do. Chipmunks do. I've never heard of rabbits. I know that a couple, a young couple in Mongolia um, contracted plague from marmots uh, yeah eating marmot liver whoa they were extracting marmot liver i believe it's a popular dish i feel like though really a guy Um, wrote in the guy we had on the squirrel doctor we had on a squirrel doctor um who researches squirrels and he was talking about the very impressive how squirrel nut sacks swell and shrink. You notice? Yep. Yep. Like sometimes you look at a squirrel, it's like, oh my gosh. Right. Like he can't even bring his legs together. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. And other times they don't. And as its breeding season comes, it swells. This guy wrote in talking about how that's not uncommon. There's a monkey, a vervet monkey, that when it's ready to breed, not only do they swell, they turn a brilliant blue. Whoa. He was so impressed by the blue that he's going to his local hardware store and have him do a color match. (laughs) (laughs) He says he's going to paint a wall in his house with it. So what is he doing? He's bringing in a picture of the like... Yeah. He wants to paint... He wants monkey ball blue. (laughs) (laughs) He says just a brilliant, dazzling... I want to see the picture that he's bringing into the Ace hardware wherever he's going because if it's a tight shot, that's one thing. But if it's like a wide where you see the monkey and everything... Like, give me that. Yeah. Let me quiz you on something. Uh-huh. Let's say you were going to transition, as I am about to, between that story and albino porcupines. What would you go with? Are you going to give me an option? Oh, right there. There you go. Oh. That's, oh, that dude, is that incredible. is a beautiful blue. I'd be like, you know what doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. I'd be like, you know what doesn't have a blue scrow? It's a white porcupine. Yeah, something like that. Uh, speaking of colors, that's what Corinne thought would be good. There you go. Yeah, um, yes. yeah. Corinne went with speaking of colors in, in, in presenting the material that we've uh, pulled together here. Uh, 
albino porcupines. We talked about an albino porcupine on the show that a guy got a road, found a roadkill albino porcupine and supposedly Cabela's offered him what? $60,000, $60,000 for his albino porcupine. Apparently everybody, every Tom, Dick and Harry on the planet has got an albino porcupine. We heard from all kinds of them. Carl in Northern Minnesota shot one while hunting and he hasn't mounted. He hasn't mounted almost nibbling on moose antlers. So there he is. He also has two real nice walleye mounted there yeah. behind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which I've noticed. So albino porcupines are all over the damn place. One out of apparently. Ten, one out of 10,000. Really? That's what. Holy quick, smokes. Quick Google. So that's, that's a good percentage of them. That's incredible. Did the guy sell it for 60000 before they did all that research? What God is talking about it was the fact that uh, he, I, uh, I find that it's like a thing people say a lot is that they were offered exorbitant amounts of money for things by places like Cabela's. Right. But I do know some cases where some people have done some great transactions. Um, and we got to talking about, is that really true? Like, cause the first guy that had an albino porcupine, his old man turned down an offer from Cabela's of, of 60 grand. And then that led me to believe, like, really? Really? For a roadkill porcupine? But he could be independent, <clears throat> independently wealthy. That's probably why they just got bought by Bass Pro, because they're spending that much money on roadkill <laughs> freaking... It's like, good God, man. Yeah. The diligence process. So I have all that money. Yes. <laughs> Porcupine. He should, you, you, but you should have seen the, the nuts on this squirrel. <laughs> you just, you'd have dug deep too. <laughs> yeah, we paid half a mil for that one. Uh, <laughs> Worth it. Bear with us, Robert. <laughs> I'm learning all sorts of. Things. Oh no, we're gonna get to things. We're gonna get to something coming up soon that you'll be able to plan on. So we. Uh, Oh, oh no. Oh no, I want, we want to talk about this one first. I was saying on the show, I don't know why I had the idea. Do you know, Robert, do you remember the Kiss song, Beth? Beth, I hear you calling. I don't remember it. I wasn't into heavy metal. Well, it's, it's symphonic for starters. Well, if it's Kiss, I never listened to Kiss. So I, I don't remember the song. Yeah, I wanted to do, I wanted to do a rewrite. I didn't have time to do it. I wanted to do a rewrite that was, instead of Beth, I hear you calling, it was Seth, I hear you calling, and it was going to be a turkey hunting song. And a lot of guys wrote in and wrote the song. <laughs> That's so, great. So Hayden, one of our audio guys, and, and Cal, and then uh, Phil the Engineer, they took the best lines from the versions that came in and they have done Seth, I hear you calling, which will Phil will share with you. Then I think in the end, what we'll do is instead of the, the songs we normally use at the end of the show, if you want to hear the whole Seth, I hear you calling, then uh, you want to hear a little bit of it. You'll sure. Here, here, yeah. Let me hit you with it. You'll recognize it. Oh, it's good.
Seth, I hear you calling, but we can't hunt birds at night. The flip-flop flesher is eager to use that turkey call just right. Just a few more hours and the birds will leave the roost. I think I hear them calling. Seth, what can I do? What can I do? Seth, what can I do? Seth, I hear you calling. Uh, Cal normally only, um, not only, Cal sings a lot of Neil Diamond. So oh, I, was, really? I was excited to see that Cal has uh, expanded. Yeah, has expanded. A guy wrote in to say this. He says, uh, we're always talking about pot calls and strikers getting gunked up, but we never talk about how to fix the problem. He's a chemist. That's what he says his credentials are. And he says, as a chemist, here's my tip. Soak a section of clean paper towel in pure non-dyed acetone. Rub it on the striker surface or pot surface, making sure to wet it well with the acetone. Use mild force. Then dry it with a fan or your car's AC so that it's dry air. Repeat two more times. This will remove the grime. Corinne took this piece of feedback to Jason Phelps, Phelps Game Calls. He was not familiar with this hot tip. He tried it. He said, it works, but I don't know how much better it works than just wiping it with a rag. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's another. Here's a rule thing that we want to clarify. We talked about a recent thing. You're, in, 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 there are rules coming out Again, like like laws saying that you can't do the turkey hunting strategy of fanning, correct, or reaping. And we were talking about, well, how do you explain, like, how, what is the legalese or what is the verbiage? Well, South Carolina, this was the first year where it was illegal to use a tail fan on public land. Yep. And I was just curious, like, how do they describe what's legal? It's I have right here. This this is one from South Carolina where we're sitting right now. Um, fanning slash reaping. So fanning or reaping is defined as hunting or stalking wild turkeys while holding or using for hunter concealment any of the following items: a tail fan, a partial or full decoy with a tail fan or a tail fan mounted to a firearm. Tail fans include those made of real or synthetic feathers or an image or likeness of a tail fan applied to any material. This regulation does not prohibit the use of male decoys or decoys with tail fans that are placed away from a hunter. So pretty clear. Yeah. They did a good job of explaining it. Yeah, I thought they did. Because I mean, if you're hunting on public land, you don't you don't have a tail fan with you. Period. You just don't. But if you're hunting on private land, you're fine legally. You're fine. Yep. Yeah. What uh? Do do you know? Is it more like they're heading off trouble, or has there already been trouble? I, I'm not as up on that subject as I was ten years ago when I was with the National Wild Turkey Federation. But I have not heard any incidents where the there was a problem with somebody being shot. 
Because they were hunting with a tail fan. No, there we we've had some come in. Okay, I didn't know about. I hadn't heard with this state though. But yeah, there's been a number I, of cases. I, yeah, so so that's that's the reasoning. I know uh, when this started coming up eight years ago, when I was with the Turkey Federation, there was debates, there was discussion among the biologists about this, and then I went to work for the Longleaf Alliance and kind of got away from the hunter access, hunter, hunter incident, hunter accidents. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> On public land, I mean it. You know, it's another, it's another way to get shot. We were talking about getting shot before, but the tail fans are. Um, I, I wouldn't. I'd never use it where there's rifles available. I mean, you ever see those ones where it's a hat? No. Yeah, they make oh. it that it's a tail fan mounted to your hat. Let's put some deer antlers up there for the fall. <laughs> 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 I mean, that's. That's not smart, but you know you gotta be careful. I don't know, but like I've used I've used yeah, that I approach for sure, man. I have too. It works. I've crawled up on turkeys and stuck the shotgun barrel out between the feathers of the fan. Yeah, pulled it the works. trigger. You gotta be careful where you're using it, how you're using it. It's like anything else. I mean, there've been a lot of decoys shot that didn't have a tail fan. You just have to. You gotta be careful. You gotta be careful. You gotta be careful. Yeah, you gotta be careful how you put your boot up on a stump. You do. You get shot. <laughs> don't put it up. A, don't put it up on a stump like a turkey fanning out. Right. Uh, Robert, you know what I wanted to tell you? What I wanted you to tell me? Um, because I feel like I told this story before and messed it up. Okay. But can you share with me the story about the guy in Mexico? Yeah. That when they were arranging to get Goulds. Tell that story. Yeah, so we were trapping ghouls turkeys in Mexico when I was with the Turkey Federation. We were working with Arizona Game and Fish and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, APHIS, Animal Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, because we were bringing poultry across an international border into Arizona. And we were down in the Sierra Madre trapping turkeys, and we were working with a local um, uh, guide who knew all the landowners. And the deal we had worked out with them is for every landowner that lets us trap a turkey on their property, we'll give them a hundred bucks for that turkey. Because the whole problem of getting the ghouls wild turkeys, there are not very many in Arizona, New Mexico, which is where they were found down in the Sky Islands. And we were down there, and one of the other one of the other biologists, Bobby Madry, um, was down there the week before I was, and he was setting stuff up, and then I was coming down, but. We had one rancher that they had contracted with. Were, were you guys flying in and out? Both. We were driving and we were flying but in were, and out. You, how, how are you moving the turkeys? Uh, both. Sometimes driving, sometimes flying. When I was down there working, we flew, I can't remember if it was 30 birds, but we flew about 30 birds across the border in small aircraft. And we had a little bit of a challenge with that, too. That's another story. But Oh, um, well, you tell that one next. Okay. Well, remind <laughs> me about that. Small aircraft crossing Turkeys. the international border from Mexico. And uh, so so this rancher every day for, you know, a couple of months, every so he would walk up to his property, six or seven miles out of the little the little town of Yakara. He'd walk up there with two five-gallon buckets of corn and bait the turkeys where we were going to trap them. And we went up there, and man, his place was wrapped up with turkeys. We caught 36 turkeys. And so when Bobby started paying the guy 
$3,600 in U.S. $100 bills, $3,600. He started crying. It was, it was like, no, 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 it's too much. It's way too much. And, of course, he was speaking Spanish that we didn't understand. We were speaking English, and we had a translator, and something was getting lost in the translation. And finally, we figured out that he had been working for us for two months to bait those turkeys so that we could go trap them with the expectation of getting $100 for trapping on his property. And we were giving him a hundred dollars a bird, and we caught thirty six turkeys. He got thirty six hundred dollars. When he realized that, he started crying. And we found out later that that was enough to go buy enough cattle to start his cattle herd mm. on this high mountain ranch in the Sierra Madres. It was pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah, uh, man. That's a super little cool. bit of money for wildlife, and and the poaching of turkeys during that time period in that town and in that surrounding mountain range, when we were in there trapping, ended. Nobody was selling <laughs> turkeys in the market for $3. <laughs> but, that, but when we were flying them out, so we had another biologist in the U.S. that was meeting the plane, and we were, in, we were you know, talking on cell phones saying, okay, the plane's, the plane's getting ready to come in, and, and the Border Patrol is sitting there watching on their radar and said, we don't see a plane, we don't see a plane, and the guy's saying, no, we're crossing the the border right now. We're coming in. We're coming in. And and apparently the pilot we had hired to cross the border didn't know how to fly above 100 feet. And so when he crossed the border, he came in under radar. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then came in and landed. And the plane had to land in a, in a little circle. They directed, okay, you got to land over there. And then Border Patrol comes up. With the with the sniffer dogs and everything, and and they had a Labrador Retriever that was a sniffer dog, and they tell us Bobby told the story that sniffer dog went berserk on that plane because <laughs> full of turkeys because <laughs> it was full of turkeys not cocaine not marijuana not any kind of drugs, and when they opened the door there was a breast feather that flew out of the door because you know they're turkeys it flew out of the door. And that dog caught it on his nose and just sucked it right against his <laughs> nose. <laughs> it was the best smell he'd ever had. <laughs> and then they let us go. But. Uh, there's another two things I want you to explain that you've been explaining to me down here. Is, uh, explain the dog hunt thing around here. For deer. On the, the whole thing about the Department of Energy and all that stuff real quick. Okay. Or however long you want to spend on it. Well, this is fascinating, man. I, I had no idea this went on. So, dog hunting in the South is traditional. It's been around. I mean, I know about forever. that part, but yeah. but go on. Yeah. So, when um, the deer population start to start to increase on Savannah River site, one of the things that they did is they had dog hunts and still hunts. But the, but you got to explain what the site is. Oh, the Savannah River site. It's two hundred thousand acre um, federal facility, Department of Energy, that was administered by the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. And so it, since the 1950s, it was making uh, radioactive material for the use of atomic weapons. And they moved, like, this is a crazy story, man. In the 50s, height of the Cold War, yeah. like, there's no debate in whether this is important business or not. Right. Moved, declared this area, that that's what this is for, and moved... 20,000 people. You're like, your farm is not here anymore. Yeah. It's now over there. Your town, we're moving your town over to there. Right. New Ellington, Dunbarton, Patterson Mill, 
all these little towns in the 1950s. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember if it was two years or three years to to get out, but they were condemned, and that was that was part of the deal. That's how they. I mean, this is all. This isn't. No, this isn't the West where you got a lot of national forests and you got you got BLM land, you got federal land. It's all private land, and they wanted 200,000 acres in a basically a circle so you could put the reactors in the middle of it so you had a five mile buffer, and they condemned the property, took the property, and paid the people. You know, but he, yeah, quote, it's like fair you, market value. if you want your house moved, we'll move it. If yep. it's here, we're burning we're it, tearing it down, burning it. Yeah, Cemeteries, burning. if they can find a a, a, a descendant who's alive will dig up the bodies and move it if not it stays yeah wow yeah so there's little and cemeteries they emptied all... the place out yep dude and then hired then hired 25,000 people yeah <laughs> to come in and, and build the reactors <laughs> build the reactors at the time and then they had to and plant nuts and they had to plant all the agricultural fields so the 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 ventilation on the reactors was as i understand it it was forced air ventilation and you couldn't have dust and so all these agricultural fields, all the pine trees on Savannah River site, I don't, right now, it's been too long. I don't remember how many tens of thousands of acres of agricultural fields on the site. And the U.S. Forest Service was brought in to plant the fields, plant all the trees. And for three years, they planted trees. They planted uh, slash, loblolly, and longleaf pine to get something growing on that land so they wouldn't have dust storms. And because there were no longer any crops on it. And... It was the largest tree plant in operation in the United States at that time. It took all the trees from the southeast for either two or three years and directed them to the Savannah River site to plant, I don't know, 100,000 acres. I can't remember. That's a nuts story, man. Yeah. It's 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 an interesting site. You were talking about the deer hunting. So oh, that, yeah. So you wind up with... So, so you're you, you re you're like it's like the weirdest sort of rewilding process, right? And the and the deer, um, I had read a wildlife survey from the from like 1951 1952, um, and there were not very many deer. I remember the turkeys. They estimated there were 12 turkeys on the property, 200,000 acres. There weren't hardly any deer, but with this rewilding. The deer populations began to increase and eventually had deer car collisions. And that was the justification to start hunting the site. And they had uh, still hunting and dog hunting. And then the, the still hunting was outlawed in, I came 1990, it was outlawed in the 80s, sometime in the 1980s. And they went to just dog hunts. And you would get drawn for a dog hunt as a stander or you would be a, a, a dog man that would bring a helper and six dogs. And then you would, you would have a dog hunt, but they, they'd put the standers out a hundred standers a day, 900 feet apart and <laughs> turn the dogs loose. Yeah. yeah it was crazy. Yeah. But hold on, because you told me my, my dial was red hot, but then you told me a lot more about this that you're not telling everybody now. I want you to tell everybody all the parts, which what, what am I leaving out? That they take the hunters, like you apply to go hunt. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so now the load them in a van. Yep. 10-person minivan. It used to be school buses. <laughs> Listen to this. <laughs> oh, this this goes good. on right now. <laughs> yeah. This That's, is amazing. Uh, that was a great it tidbit. Used, it used to be school buses or, or you know, big buses. And now and now it's small buses. And, you know, 10-person vans, and you drop them out 900 feet apart. And then you got a guy that runs around, picks up a dead deer, and 
carries them over and designated skinner. Got a designated gutter. He doesn't skin them. He guts them, puts them in a refrigerator truck so the meat doesn't spoil. And then at the end of the day, and then you got twenty five dog men. Yeah. Wait, but does anybody know yeah. each other? Like, <laughs> how does this work, man? That's no, because you're randomly dist- you're randomly distributed. Now the dog, now the dog, the dog. <laughs> it's guys. like luck of the draw about where they make you get out of the van. Oh, so you could get, either get paired with somebody. Everybody has like buckshot. A, yeah, dude. Yeah, buckshot, rifles crap. are illegal. It's buckshot only. the The dog men have generally been doing this for years yeah. and years and years. Because yeah. once once they know they have a highly qualified hunter with good dogs, if, as long as he wants to hunt, he comes. If somebody so drops out, twenty-five houndsmen with twenty-five helpers, six dogs apiece, all turned loose and in that swamp we were. And hunting. then you got all those dudes in the vans distributed around with buckshot to get everything stirred up, dude. What was the thought it's process? An amazing hunt to get rid of the still hunt, hunting. They just didn't want. <laughs> just, uh, doesn't make a good story. <laughs> doesn't make a good story. The guy got killed. Oh, oh. So yeah, he got killed. So they were oh, they were they had the still they had still hunting. And uh, as I understand it, he he w- went in before daylight and climbed up in the tree stand. had a had a climber had some kind of tree stand. Uh, it was either in, I think it was in the eighties. I don't remember when it was in the eighties. And um, as he was sitting in his stand before daylight, there were other hunters coming into the woods, and he could see flashlights. He could see people climbing the tree stand. And uh, but, wh- but that's not a still hunt. That's an ambush. Well, that's climbing. Yeah, hunting out of a tree. I mean, down here they call it still hunting. Really? Yeah. You guys don't know what still hunting is down here? <laughs> yeah, they call it still hunting. So, but you know what still hunting is. Yeah, you're slipping through the woods. Yeah. You're walking. Still hunting is where you sit still. And so, no, you don't sit still when you're still hunting. <laughs> right. <laughs> you move. When you're still hunting, you move. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you're sitting still, that's ambush hunting. Well, if you're still hunting in the south and you move, you fall out of a tree. Then you got to call Doug Dern and ask him. <laughs> then you got to call Doug Dern and ask him what a mooch is. A mooch. It's yep. It's 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 sort of a combo of still hunting and stand hunting. It's a mooch. They had to come up with a whole other word to describe this method. <laughs> <laughs> but this guy, this guy decided he wouldn't want to get it, and they suspect this. I mean, they don't know it for a fact, but they suspect it because right at sunrise, he climbed out of his tree, and started to walk out, and he got he got shot, and. He, got, he was carrying a stand on his back. He got shot in the back, and he turned around. The second shot hit him in the chest. Mm. Oh, jeez, dude. So he didn't get shot once. He got shot twice, and he got killed. And that was the end of still hunting on, on the Savannah River side. And they went to dog hunting only after that. Let me tell you some more interesting stuff, Chris, Uh huh. that Robert shared with me earlier. Got my dial. You don't budge when they drop you off. Right. If you get a hit and got to track it, they come you, track it for you. Yeah. Oh. Or a dog man will come. Yeah. Wait, so lay this out for me. They drop the hunters <laughs> Ask Robert, off. I don't know. They yeah. drop the hunters off in <laughs> right. a designated spot, 900 right. feet apart from right. each other. They do not move. No, they don't move. They stay right there. And so they're waiting for the dog to drive the deer. To, is it like a deer drive with dogs? I want to get involved deer, in this so bad. It's a deer drive. It's a, I mean, but that's traditional. That's, that's not any different than... All the southern states and Ontario, Canada, also they hunt with dogs. Yeah, so they listen, just hunt with the dogs deer. is one thing, but this is a whole. This is like the organization to this. And I'm not dogging on it. I would do it right now if I could. And it's extremely effective. And that was why they did it because you know a still hunter, the a guy sitting in a tree stand, the average success is ten percent. In a in a, you put a hundred still hunters in the woods, ten of them are going to kill a deer. Mm-hmm. You put a hundred 
hunters in the woods with dogs on these hunts, you're going to kill 50 deer. Wow. Now, that was before coyotes. So the coyotes. This is a crazy story. Now, this is where this, this story starts to make its own gravy here. Yeah. So that was before the, the, the hunts in the 80s and the early 90s killed about 1,000 deer on the Savannah River out of 200,000 acres. And then the numbers started dropping about, God, I'm not sure when, late 90s. John Kilgo would know. And um, the late 90s. Uh, We're going to get this guy on the show, but you can preview all this. Yeah, so the numbers started dropping, and everybody says, you know, why, why are we not killing the bucks? Well, on one of the, um, one of the hunts, the scanner was talking to the biologist, and he's going, he said, you know, we haven't killed any six-month-old deer this year, this fall. You know, deer born in the spring, fall, they're six months old. We haven't killed any six-month-old deer this year, or today. And they killed about 100 deer a day. And he said, no, that's crazy. About 50% of what you kill is young of the gear. It's, it's, the, it's a six-month-old deer. And uh, they went back and looked at the data, and it's like, we've killed two. And they went back to the weekend before to see how many they killed, and it was two or three or four. There were no fawns. Mm. No fawns were being were, – no fawns were entering the population in the fall of the year. They were gone. They were gone by the fall of the year. And so that's when U.S. Forest Service came along and started doing some radio telemetry work by putting intrauterine devices into the uterus of the does. And when she gave birth, the fawn would come out and the transmitter would come out and go into mortality mode. So when that transmitter quit moving with the movement of the doe, it would stop. And after an hour of no movement or two hours of no movement, it would start ticking. And they would go in and, you know, the fawns are just tiny at that time. You'd catch them, put a put a collar on them. They, they'd dispatch out like grad students <laughs> yeah, or field techs students. or something yep. to go scour the woods, right? Go scour the woods. Dude, I didn't know they could even do that. Oh, yeah. We, so, found, them, we found them hunting morels now and then. Really? Yeah. The, it's like the... No, no, no. Sorry. Fawns. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like and, brand, brand new fawns. Oh, and, really? Yeah. yeah, you can reach down and pick them up. I mean, that's why you're not supposed to because you can't. They, they're just... I mean, they're only this big. I mean, people think you're crazy yeah. when you say they're they're literally you know the size of a ham. They're smaller than a ham. My dad's buddy had a fishbowl. Uh, his buddy Eugene Groters had this fishbowl, and in this fishbowl, he had it was full of formaldehyde and had two whitetail fawns curled up in a fishbowl sitting on the counter as a decoration. Whoa! That's it had pretty. like a cap on it. Yeah, but in his house. Yeah. It's amazing, man. We just when we were kids, oh, dude, we cool. stare at that thing nonstop. Wow, that's gorgeous, beautifully done. Hey, everybody! I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see 
Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Go on. So the first year, (laughs) (laughs) the first year they put radio collars on, it was about 10 years ago, so I don't have all the data on the tip of my tongue, but my memory tells me that they put radio collars on 17 fawns, and within two weeks, 15 of them were dead. And Back up, because maybe I was thinking about that. Fishbowl? Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, so I'll make sure everybody's the, the listeners are getting this. So you covered this, right? That the 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 sensor passes out, goes yeah. into more clicks, then you go out and hunt around, find the fawn. Put a radio collar on a, it. Like a full on collar. Yeah, on a neck. Put a neck collar on it. Gotcha. And then and, wait for that to have a mortality signal. Right. And then when that one has a mortality, you go in and determine why the fawn died. And within two weeks. And, you know, John may come on and say, no, he's got it all wrong. It was within three weeks. Or so I, I, I remember it being within two weeks. The um, 15 of the 17 fawns were dead and 14 of them by coyotes and one by bobcat, which we never had coyotes here in the, in the 80s. They didn't show up till the 90s. So this is a new predator in a new system. And all of a sudden, this is happening to the fawn production. Well, you couldn't you couldn't kill does if you had that kind of depredation on your on your deer population. There's there's you you wouldn't have a, you wouldn't have any deer, and so some of the hunt clubs started, you know, well maybe we don't need to kill as many does or maybe we don't need to do this and 
And, or do we need to bring in a coyote trapper? Or what do we, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? And the research, I haven't kept up with the research, but the research has continued. And it's not true all over the South. It's weird. It's in, it's in some areas, coyotes have become extremely effective predators on fawns. Extremely effective. And that is new to the South because we did not have coyotes in the South. The, the big predator in the South was red wolves. They got wiped out a long time ago, except for coastal Louisiana, coastal Texas. And that was maybe in the 70s that red wolves were all captured and put into a captive breeding program to keep them from going extinct. And then re-released on Bulls Island, South Carolina, and on Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge in eastern North Carolina. So the, the big mega predator in the east disappeared hundreds of years ago. And they're back. I mean, we could, my son shot one coyote, weighed 44 pounds. Wow. I don't know if that's a big coyote or a little coyote, but it seemed big to me. Um, it had big old choppers. But that was, you know, that's, that's what, it was, it was just interesting. Here was this issue that came up because the skinner on a hunt said, hey, there's something going on here. The biologist started talking with him. He started looking at him. It raised a question. They went out and did research, came up with some preliminary answers, but as most of your viewers are going to say, it was only 17 deer. That's, the sample size is too small, and that's true. But it raised a question, and then they started doing more research, more research, and more research. And so it's been going on about 10 years now. And the hunt began as a management tool because there was too many deer running around. Right. They're but not they, killing 1,000 deer now. But <laughs> now everybody likes the, the process. Yeah, so it so continues. They want they want to... Yeah, it's 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 not going away. I mean, right. it's it's a it's a public hunt. Yep. If, if you wanna if you wanna hunt, you you put in. If you get drawn, you hunt. Is it still a, a nuclear facility now? Uh, it is. It's still a nuclear facility, and it's pretty much in in cleanup mode. Gotcha. Yeah. How do they determine? So, do you get your own deer? Oh There's, yeah, it's tagged. When it comes in, it's you're given. You're you know you got a you got. So some you get tags. your deer back. Yeah, you get your deer back. Yes. You know how you guys call, you know, still hunting, it, you know what it means, slipping through the woods real quiet. But you're saying sitting in the stand. That's still hunting. Why do you call it gutter a skinner? Uh, I just did. I don't know. You can't. Yeah, defend, he was a gutter. You can't defend that. No, I can't defend that. He was a gutter. I mean, he didn't skin the deer. He yeah. gutted him. Yeah. Skinner sounds more noble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. My daddy was a skinner. Yeah. I, was, I was mistaken. <laughs> I was mistaken. My daddy was a gutter. Yeah, I like Skinner yeah. better. Well, yeah. they, what do they manage that property for? So you got is Seth it, right perked up about is this. Is it timber man? or wildlife? He was low before. <laughs> well, it's an ecological research park oh, Okay. in addition to this. So they do a, a tremendous amount of ecological research on it. Um, a lot of the universities, the University of Georgia, Clemson, University of South Carolina, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the universities do research on it because it's, it's got gates, it's protected, your scientific equipment doesn't get disturbed. Yep. You can go out there and and it's done some ground groundbreaking research. That's where, cool for you know that you could run for twenty years and not have your you know still go to the same spot and it's not turned into a subdivision. Yeah, it's still hmm. it's still like that. That's cool. Anything else, Seth? No. Go ahead, man. Yeah. That's all I had. No, that's and it. will it stay as its current designation as kind of like a wildlife? Is there any plans to? They talk about it all the time. Doing, what's what's going to become the site? There's but, people that want their land back. 
Yeah, I went to public when I when I worked out there between ninety and ninety five. I'd go to public meetings, and there'd be at least one old guy, two old guys, stand up at the public meetings and say, "I want my land back." Yeah, you're not generating, you know, nuclear radionuclides anymore. You're not generating radioactive material. I want my farm back. So I would totally understand that if I yeah. if it was my oh. farm. But I'm so happy. Had, like every time you had to drive by, oh, I'd be, be like, "Oh yeah, I used to own that." It'd be terrible, but I think it's just, if you can imagine just various places, it's just nice to have a chunk like that. It's a big chunk of land. It yeah. is, man. And I'm not, and, and it's like the, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not putting the farmer as a broken egg, but like, you no. know, breaking eggs, making omelets, all that kind of stuff. Like, I understand, man, but it is. Just in two generations. Because cause you're at the time, at the time, it's probably presented as your patriotic duty. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was right after the right after the Second World War, and then that ends. You're like, okay, cool. I'm an American. I understand. We got to beat the Ruskies, and then that all ends. And then you kind of got to be like, okay, I know. But so it, it's not the Russians anymore. In, in my mind, <laughs> having intact ecological systems is also our patriotic duty. Which I you know, I'm just I, yeah. getting in the. I'm offering <laughs> the as you as you said. Yeah the very understandable perspective of the individual who's removed yeah. from his property. I know a dude that had his farm taken by eminent domain for a golf course. Oh, there's no oh, way. Dude. Dude. No way <laughs> would I allow that to happen. I know. I would be the crazy guy holed up in the house. Talk about a chapped ass over that one, man. He has to go I, by and see like a bunch of people wearing yeah, his old dumb farm shirts. Eminent domain over a golf course? Yeah. I would make everyone that, you know what? I'd give that guy's place back and then make all those people that ever played golf on there be his farm hands for no compensation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Really? Oh, it's terrible. Oh, my God. It's a war on Christmas. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) It's like my dad used to hunt geese there and all sorts of, they used to hunt waterfowl, deer, all sorts of stuff. In China, the holdouts, they call them, they call them nail houses. I don't know, but like somebody that refuses in a big development, everybody else will sell. But they'll refuse, and they'll just be like their little a Dude. golf course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's a that's that's a terrible. damn shame. Yeah. I don't even I'd see how they could do I'd that. rather be a mini golf course. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, I don't at, least, I'd be like at least tell me it's putt putt golf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's a travesty. Okay, Robert, you ready to switch gears? We can. You got to tell everybody all about. Longleaf pines. Okay. So in the South, the dominant pine species, the dominant ecosystem in 1491 was longleaf pine. Um, It's a tree that grows 350, 400 years. Most people that don't, that aren't foresters or botanists, and they look at a pine, it's pine. It's pine tree. They can't tell the difference. You know, Seth's a forester. I didn't know that. I went to school for it. Okay. So in the South, we've got a bunch of different pines, but the two most common one, three most common ones are slash, loblolly, and longleaf. And oh, when you said slash, slash pine, I thought you meant it was some kind of like cultivar. No, no, it's a species. Of pine. I thought I thought you meant like a hybrid, and you were saying slash like like blank oh, slash like a hyphen or something. Yeah, that's yeah. so. That's no, no. a species of pine. Species. I didn't yeah, know yeah. that. Okay. So we've got three that are, we got more species than that. We got white pines and we've got spruce pines, but the slash loblolly and longleaf are the three important commercial pines. Okay. So before settlement, 
And and really up to 1900, the longleaf pine was one of the dominant species. In fact, we think that it probably covered about 92 million acres in the South, uh, based on the habitat and the soils and where we think it grew. By 1950, it was way below half. And by 19, let's see, 1990, 1989, it was down to 3 million acres. Because so, of what? Good question. The first thing was cutting it down, uh, make turpentine out of it. You would you would bark the trees, drain it of turpentine. And during the wooden ships industry, that's what you used to caulk the ships, was tar, was rope or caulking that had been soaked in tar and then hammered between those boards to keep it from leaking. Um, so the tar and that, and that, turpentine. That, when, you're, when you're getting that material out, Right. So, so the the long leaf sap produces right. what? Rosin. Um, well, the the sap comes out. You 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 bleed the tree. Okay, the and, and that's that's fatal to the tree eventually. Eventually, eventually. But they would leave. Um, they might box the tree. It's called boxing a tree. You might box a tree on both sides. Uh-huh. If it was a really big tree, you might put three boxes on it. I've seen one stump that had four boxes, and they would leave maybe a three inch strip of bark between the boxes so the tree wouldn't die so as long as it as long as it had something where the the phloem and the xylem would connect from the roots to the to the uh, needles and needles to the roots there'd be an exchange and the tree could survive the tree could live did you see how he he gestured towards seth when he said phloem and xylem i oh, did for, yeah. For sure. yeah. like yeah. it'd be all over your head and yeah all over my yeah head. chris don't know what for you listeners yeah. at home, Robert did <laughs> it very, very sort of like a like a little gesture nod to Seth. Like, like oh, we, you know, we're Seth, Seth will follow. <laughs> yeah. Seth here will follow. <laughs> this is over everyone. I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, they had a little, they had a little moment there about the Zolm and <laughs> the Flyem. <laughs> <laughs> so after you'd tap the tree, uh, there would be a period of time where they would produce the crop. And a crop of turpentine, a crop of sap that yeah. you would then process into turpentine. But okay, I want to I want to get this right. Um, that goes on for so long, but it, but it, the tree dies. Yeah, eventually it dies, and it, it would get cut. It get cut down, and generally you didn't turn that that face into lumber. And I, I say generally they would cut the tree down, cut that face off, leave the face in the woods. Oh, and, you mean the part that was all the scarred, for right? The, the yeah. box, the boxed section. Uh, leave it in the woods and cut the upper part into timber, heart pine timber, red heart timber. Um, but it's kind of interesting on if if you own that land, you weren't going to waste those trees. So you went ahead and sawed out those butt logs. And we've we've located at least four two by fours in my grandmother's house that was built in 1921 that actually has the cut marks on it. From the, so You're my, kidding me. No, nah, so my grandfather, when he cut the trees to take them to the sawmill, he didn't leave that butt log laying in the woods. He hauled it to the sawmill. That's and, cool. And he sawed it up into two-by-fours, and there's only one you can see, but if you go up in the attic, there's two others of the ceiling joists that, that has the cat face on it. Where That's they, cool. Where they cut it out of the tree. Yeah, which is really cool. And then they use them for fence posts because they don't rot. They they last forever. We've got fence posts that've been in the ground. This year will be a hundred years they've been in the ground. Huh. Wow. Yeah. yeah, they've gone through down two, here. Yeah, in the south. They don't yeah. rot. Yeah, they've gone through two wild. or three um, metal fences. Wow. The metal the metal doesn't last as long. And they have big camps. Yeah, the turpentine camps. 
where they're extracting this stuff. Right. And that was, that was, uh, yeah, forever because it's out in the boonies. I mean, you go where the trees are. You, it wasn't something you could bring into town to do. And so you'd have the folks out there tapping the trees and, um, and processing it out in, out in the camps. Robert was explaining to me how they needed labor. Right. And they made vagrancy laws. So you were highly encouraged to go work in the turpentine camp. If you didn't have a job, you could be picked up for vagrancy. Right. Had to have a job. Against the law to not have a job. No loitering. If you get picked up for vagrancy, you go to prison. When you're in prison, you get rented out to the turpentine camp. Oh, God, dude. So <laughs> your choices are turpentine camp or turpentine camp. Like, one way or another. Yeah, either getting paid or you're going to the camp. You're going down to work. It was bad. And that, that really, that, that program didn't peter out until the Second World War. And when there were so many jobs during the Second World War, uh, they, could, they could get out of the camps and they could, they could go you work. You had an there. option. They had options. They could work at the naval shipyards. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you call what drips out of the longleaf pine then? Sap? Yeah. I, I don't know if that's exactly the, the correct term. Uh, or, I might be mistaken on that, but it's sap. It's pine sap. Or pitch or whatever. Yeah, pitch. But there's, they make a bunch of products from it. Right. They made, it's it's tar, basically tar pitch and turpentine, and they were all used in the naval industry. The, na the naval stores, they call naval stores. And, of course, when I went through school, it's like, what was the number one export in colonial North Carolina? I was born in North Carolina. It was naval stores. Good. You got that correct. But nobody knew what naval stores. They didn't teach you what naval stores were. That was just the question on the test when you were in, you know, the eighth grade. But the naval stores was the tar pitch and turpentine that allowed the ships to be waterproof and resistant to marine worms that could bore through the bottom of the wooden ship. It would waterproof the ropes. It would waterproof the tarpaulins. The word tarpaulin had tar on it. Um, you still see that in old, uh, if you're reading like old books, how-to books and wilderness travel books, they're always talking about getting it. I always saw it's pronounced tarpaulin. Yeah. But like T-A-R-P-A-U-L-I-N. Correct. And it's taken now just to mean like, I, I remember uh, like guys of my dad's age would even call a plastic tarp a tarp. Yeah, a blue tarp. You have yeah, a they, hurricane, they, the roofs are all covered in blue tarps. Yeah, they, but they'd call it a tarpaulin. Right. Yeah. Right. And so then the, the so you so you ask, why, how did we lose all the longleaf? So we used them until we used them up. Every, every time somebody needed to grow a field of corn, you had to cut trees down. Corn won't grow in the, in the shade. And so you cut the trees down and cut them up, build your house like my grandfather did, and then you can plant your corn crop or your tobacco crop or, wh or whatever. And then in the 1950s, um, the, the pulp mills came to the south, and loblolly pine could produce more pulp faster and more timber faster on an acre of land than longleaf was. So they would cut out the longleaf and convert longleaf to loblolly. And that was pretty much the death knell because the landowner could make the landowner could grow the same size tree could grow the, the landowner like where we were hunting those trees that were 20 inches in diameter were 38 year old trees they were loblolly pine to get a 38 to get a um, 28 inch longleaf might take 200 years oh and so why would the landowner plant a species that he would never see a return on yep if he can plant a species that he can get three or four returns on in his lifetime. And people, people were whacking them. 
And then you, you, as more and more of them were cut, the wildlife that was dependent upon that ecosystem, the um, red cockaded woodpecker, the gopher tortoise, the indigo snake down in Georgia and Florida, they became more and more and more rare. And the red cockaded pine or the red cockaded woodpecker uh, was actually one of the first um, species put on the endangered species list in 1974. So when they organized the first uh, endangered species list, the RCW was on it because their, the habitat was disappearing so rapidly. We met, we don't need to get into who this is, but we hunted on the, the, a, a property of a woman right. who was 86. Right. 86 years old. They used to run cattle when she was young. Right. As in her 40s, I guess, they quit running cattle. Yeah, 40s or 50s. And her, her and her husband went out, and she hand-planted. Every tree on that property. How many? 500 acres. Hand-planted. Well, out of, a, out of a tractor. The husband drove the tractor, and she sat on the tree planter. Yeah. And she had her box of seedlings, and she's just sitting there backwards, going through, going through the fields, sticking trees in the ground. She planted every one of those and when she was in her 50s, and now she's 86. And lives she's, off lives and off those trees she planted. She's cutting those trees and she's thinned them three times and and she just you know one of the areas that we were were hunting she clear cut this past January and um, it's it's you know you uh, you shot that you shot your turkey in a stand of timber that when we uh, we started leasing the property ten years ago that stand of timber was so thick you couldn't walk through it it was blackberries and pine trees. And she's thinned it once. This, she thinned it about, when did she, oh, she thinned it last year. When she clear cut the piece beside it, she thinned that piece. And um, and we shot turkeys in it. Mm-hmm. Called in two long beards, a jake and a hen, and you kill that and that, that really nice bird. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a working forest. Um, generating income for her. And yeah, she's, her kids will get income from it, and as long as it stays in the in the family. But if you just strolled over there two hundred years ago, it'd have been longleaf pine. It would have been longleaf, and there was there is longleaf around there. There's longleaf in the boundary line trees. There's longleaf by the road, uh, the place that we call that Jake in, and then we went down by the lake. That area was longleaf. That it, the, some of the big trees there was still were still longleaf. Uh, the trees we were leaning against when we call that Jake in were all loblolly. But the thicket that we were facing, all those big trees in that thicket, those were longleaf. Explain what um, what was lost in the co- between the combination of cutting off and har- killing, harvesting all the longleaf, but also with fire suppression. So when when we lost the longleaf ecosystem, we didn't lose just the tree; we lost the ecosystem. Longleaf, some people described it as a grassland with trees because the entire, the, the canopy of a, of a longleaf forest is not like most pine forests. It lets a lot of sunlight in. And that sunlight um, allows grasses to grow, but only if you have fire. So the South has one of the highest incidents of lightning strikes. Uh, I know in North America, I think in the world, but one of the highest incidents of lightning strikes, it's it's evidence shows that it probably burned on a three to five year uh, basis. Um, in, you know, rap, uh, often frequent 
low-intensity fires. You didn't have the Western fires. You didn't have crowned out, kill everything. You had flames that might be anywhere from a foot high to six feet high because it burned every year. There wasn't anything to burn. Just burning pine duff. Burning burning pine needles, burning grasses, uh, small bushes. But after years and years and years and years, the, the, the bushes were knocked down pretty good. I mean, the hardwoods were killed in the uplands and driven down into the swamps. So you had hardwood swamps, but you didn't have many hardwoods in the uplands in the lower Piedmont and the coastal plain. The mountains, you had hardwoods, but what I'm talking about is the lower Piedmont and the coastal plain all the way from Virginia around to Texas. So nine states, this was the dominant ecosystem. So what was lost was that ecosystem and the animals that depend on it. And that's a lot of, I think there's 29 species of state or federally listed animals that in uh, plants and animals that inhabit that that longleaf pine ecosystem. It's surprising driving around here how much evidence you see of controlled burning now. It's good. Is that really, is that catching on? It is. It's really good. Um, the Longleaf Alliance touts it a lot. The Turkey Federation helped people with it. The Longleaf Alliance helps. Fish and Wildlife Service will provide funding through their ecological services for burning. The NRCS, Natural Resource Conservation Service, through the U.S. Department of Agriculture, will help landowners pay for burning. And and the whole the, the we had I was given a, a presentation at the university um, just late March. And one of the, the women, one of the students asked me the question, well, if you're doing all this burning, you're killing the hardwoods, aren't you? And I said, yeah, you are. You're knocking them back. But the species that we want are those species that are adapted to this ecosystem. And the hardwoods that are getting killed and knocked out are not adapted to it. The turkey oaks that are adapted to it, the big ones don't get killed. The little ones get killed. And if you lay off fire or maybe you have a creek down here or something, then there'll be some that grow up and they'll they'll become big. But we have a lot of land in the South that is a thicket. And so the animals that require a thicket have a lot of land. We don't have a lot of land that is a grassland. And so like even that clear cut, that one-year-old clear cut that we were hunting in, there were Bachman sparrows. That morning when we were listening for turkeys to gobble, there were Bachman sparrows calling all over that entire clear cut because it was it was a grassland, it was coming up. So they liked that one year old clear cut, but they they like they they had the bunch grasses and the habitat that they required. Um, Seth went up on the national forest and shot some some video. Or Rick did. Rick went up and shot some video on the national forest, and that area is a, is a grassland with widely widely spaced trees that let enough sunlight in so that the grass will grow. Now, the, the one where you were shooting the drone videos were um, loblolly and, and shortleaf. There was, there was only one longleaf on that whole track on that one that I've found and that anybody else has found that I know about. Um, it used to be a mixture of shortleaf, loblolly, and longleaf because the habitats, the ranges were coming together in, in that upper Piedmont area right there. Um, so you ask, what have we lost? We've lost the system we've lost the animals and the plants that are associated with that system. In exchange for? In exchange for cheap paper, lumber for your house, two-by-fours for your house, toilet paper, notebook paper, newsprint, yeah. packaging, 
um, all of that. I mean, it's a trade-off. It's not, you can't blame the landowner for making the most money. Um, it's, it's, it's us. It's our society that demands uh, a paper product, which is renewable, um, timber, which are renewable, and, um, and the landowner is going to try to make the most money as possible. And what, what we're hoping is one of the things that's coming along now is carbon sequestration to help with you know, global warming if that landowner could be paid to grow trees longer than is currently profitable for them. So if they're raising loblolly pine just for money, they're going to thin, thin, clear-cut at age 30 or 35. Plant a new crop, thin, thin, clear-cut at age 35. Well, if we had a way to pay them to take those 35-year-old trees to 50 or 75 or 100 and offset the, the funds that they're going to be losing, that would sequester carbon and help with the reduction of you know, climate change and encourage the landowner to grow older trees on his property, which would help all the wildlife associated with that. But then we'd be doing the burning. We were talking about that because when you burn, you release carbon into the air. But, and that's true, but we're, the, the, the big worry is the fossil fuels because we're digging carbon up out of, the, out of the ground instead of what is naturally rotting, burning. Yeah. And in this country, it's going to burn. It's either going to burn with a lightning strike, it's going to burn with a wildfire, or it's going to burn with prescribed fire. There's no getting around that. There's no getting around it. And we can burn every three to five years with prescribed fire during the, during the right conditions where the smoke that we're sending up is not as, as hazardous, not as toxic as what it would be in an all-consuming wildfire like you see out west. That's a good point, man. It was, yeah. It was bad. This We were out there oh, elk yeah. hunting. And his, I went through Medicine Bow um, National Forest in Wyoming and it was 60 miles of smoke on the interstate and camped in Nebraska, and you could still smell the smoke in Nebraska. Dude, we had orange, like orange, orange sunsets, or, orange all day. Wow. And ash raining in our backyard. Yeah. They were having orange sunsets on the East Coast. Yeah. My yeah. folks were saying in Pennsylvania that the smoke was coming that far from those California fires. Yeah, it was not yeah. a good. So fire that's here. not, that's what we don't want. We don't want catastrophic wildfire. And one of the ways to prevent it is is to is to do prescribed fire. We burn our place up in North Carolina, and the highest flame heights we get are three or four feet. Hmm. And burn every four or five years, and just creep the fire back it in. And once you back it off a line, you can go through and set a strip head fire that that runs a head fire, and then set another one. It runs. Set another one. It runs. Set another one. It runs. And you got to get permits. You got to have training, and work with the state forestry commission on all that. What uh, is my last question for you? What if we look at how quail numbers just every decade seems to be worse? Yep. And people point to a lot of things that like fire ants, right? Proliferation of fire ants, right? Um, but this has to be a factor in that. Well, it's a huge factor. So I was raised in North Carolina quail hunting, and we go down to eastern North Carolina, we quail hunt. The, the quail population started crashing where we quail hunted in eastern North Carolina, it started crashing in the 70s. And by the 90s, that you, I mean, it's no point in quail hunting. And um, there were no fire ants there at all. Mm -hmm. They didn't make it there until 
the late 90s, early 2000, 2000. They're there now. But my point is, it couldn't have been fire ants that caused the crash in the Carolinas because there were no fire ants. Yeah. It could have, it could have, it, it could be an extending um, circumstance in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and Florida because they got there first. They came in and I think they came in in Mobile, but they came, they came in from South America. And um, fire ants are contributing. Uh, nest predation with raccoons uh, are, are a factor, but it's habitat. It's habitat, it's habitat, habitat. If you've got a, if you've got enough highly if you've got enough good habitat, you're gonna have quail. You're gonna have all those species associated with it. She put in that clear cut and last year and I I don't know where they came from. I jumped coveys of quail three different times. It's not enough to, to go buy a dog and start training a dog. But you could hear when I was scouting, I heard quail calling in that 50-acre clear cut almost every day. They were in, they were in there. And um, like you make a place for them, and there they are. And they, and they show up, and they breed, and they produce, and they survive. Uh, but the problem is those trees then grow up into where you killed your turkey. Wide open, pine straw, no habitat. And they need grass. They need... They need bunch grasses where those little ones can run around and catch insects. They need thickets where they can get away from the avian predators, from the hawks. And they need bare ground where they can actually pick up a seed. And that habitat is rare for for bobwhite quail. Yeah. Yep. Um, man. A lot. Sorry. No. I get into it. I start talking. I no, apologize. Well, that's, what, that's why they had you here, but... Uh... We had a great time hanging out with you. We I had a blast. What this, year did you and I meet in Hell's Canyon? We met in the spring of 2012. That was nine years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That We've was, had some good conversations since then. We have. That was a good hunt. Going by jet boat, take mules into Hell's Canyon, wilderness area, and turkey hunt for a week. It was a great time. <laughs> it was a great time. Yeah, best thing about it was meeting you, because then I got to come down here and hunt turkeys with you. And you're... Well, and you invited me to Florida, pull my hamstring. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Robert, thank you very much. Well, thank you all. This was a blast. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Abernathy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for throwing us around. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, yeah man. Great. It was fun. And it thank your wife week. for the food. I will. Yeah. No, we yeah, eat, you guys we are very, good. very hospitable. I'm going to eat good for a week for the food y'all left. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you very much, man. Seth, I hear you calling, but we can't hunt birds at night. The flip-flop flesher is eager to use that turkey call just right. Just a few more hours and the birds will leave the roost. I think I hear them calling Seth, what can I do? What can I do? Seth, what can I do? Seth, I hear you calling And I know that you won't stop But I have to take a growler And I just can't find a rock just a few more hours and the birds will leave the roost I think I hear them calling 
Seth, what can I do? Seth, what can I do? Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.